Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Daniel Grant, a Toronto writer and producer who co-hosts the Spoiled Rotten and Uncolonized podcasts, both of which are well worth your time, under the TDF Everything banner. And he's about to go into production on his first feature, which is very cool. Daniel picked Life, the 1999 prison comedy starring Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence as a couple of 1930s New Yorkers who make the mistake of being in Mississippi while black, are immediately framed for murder, and wind up sentenced to life on a work farm where they spend the next 65 years. Written by Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone and directed by rising star Ted Demi, it was sold at the time on the goofy possibilities of Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence being cranky with each other in old age makeup, which is, well, not exactly what one might have expected from a film about two black men wrongfully convicted of murder in the Deep South in the 1930s. We talk about that. This is someone else's movie. I think this is um, a movie that I for whatever reason, it feels like this is when I started forming my own taste in movies and more importantly than movies, storytelling. Um, When this came out, I would have been like 13. So it was kind of like, I did see it with my parents, but it was kind of like, it was the first time I recognized that I had my own opinions on it. Other than that was good. That was bad. Uh, And I think there was something about the humor, but the way it's interweaving with all these very sad things happening I, I think that just really spoke to me. I was like, I, I think I like that. I, I, this this feels better. It didn't feel cartoonish to me. Like that I I mostly Martin on TV, Martin mm-hmm. Lawrence. I was like, yeah, he's kind of the cartoonishly fun guy. And then Eddie Murphy, I'd seen most of his movies at that point. And I was just like, this feels like they're taking it a bit more seriously. And maybe that it was because it was so specifically about being caught up in the legal system. And they did have obvious um tones of the racial inequality and stuff like that and i just felt like yeah like i like this 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 feels good to me and i and it was yeah one of just an early example of me having a strong opinion on the way the story was told and not just whether or not i laughed yeah it's it's a weird one now like 20 Mm -hmm. 22 years later i watched it again last night i found it on netflix in the uk where it's packaged as a wacky comedy and <laughs> I guess, but it's really strange to watch and, and to be aware, like painfully aware that it's written by white guys. It's directed by mm-hmm. a white man, uh, Ted Demi, who was not a, like not a bad filmmaker by any means, but I just kept thinking like 1999, what would Robert Townsend have done with something like this? And, yeah. you know, it's so, it's so clearly, insistent on comedy like on finding the funny and finding the joys and and if you've seen the trailer recently it's bizarre the trailer is that was another thing uh i remember it was another time not another time one of the first times i was cognizant of like hey how come that wasn't in the movie the way the trailer was the way (laughs) it was in the trailer uh like i think there's like cicely tyson's in the trailer or like other kind of uh maybe not the trailer but she's in like promotional stuff yeah, for this movie yeah. and she's just not in it and and um even the way they get sent to jail is different and so yeah like the trailer is trying to be more fun and, and happy yeah than the well movie. i think stir crazy was a big influence at the time right because that would have been 20 mm-hmm. years before that and i think we're as far away from life now as life was from stir crazy which is just bizarre because i saw wow. that when i was yeah. a child um and stir crazy is like an overt comedy 
where the characters are innocent. They're sent in undercover. Like basically it's this whole sting thing. And then the one person who knows about it dies and they have to get out. And the, the stakes are different simply because, I mean, it's Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor comedy, but also because it's a, they're not black men in Mississippi in the 1930s. Like that context is so different and so casual in the movie because there is this charming level of unreality that they're going for where mm-hmm. like, I don't think we're totally. encouraged to think about literally anything other than the relationship between these two mismatched that is, characters. That is the big thing is that like their friendship and like how the, that can get through them through this is more important than any kind of like fighting for fighting for equal rights or like any, any of them, you know, like there's obviously when they try to get a pie at one point, but it's, it isn't, yeah, they're not really going for that kind of reality. It, yeah. it is. I think that would be too sad. It would be well, harder to get the laughs that way. Like it would, right? And the other thing too is that this is five years after the Shawshank Redemption, which I guess is in everybody else's heads. Where mm-hmm. like at the time, certainly it's, you know, I hesitate to call it Black Shawshank, but that's clearly what they were going for. Where, you know, like the authority figures are just unrelentingly cruel and they don't care and everybody. Because mm-hmm. in this one, it's, half the people say they're they're uh, not guilty don't you think that's funny and he's like well excuse me if i don't laugh yeah um, but i just do the, think the closest it comes to actually dealing with the fact that it is possible that a lot of the people in that prison are innocent because mm-hmm. the system did not care and i mean this movie does show like all the people talking at the table like in their first cohort those people acknowledge oh i did terrible things yeah and I, I, part of me was like is this i think this is the only time i considered like are they saying it to sound more tough because obviously it shows the um claude and ray are lying about what they did to yeah. get there i'm like is everyone lying at this point or is it like was it just to highlight like oh they're they're out of their league here everyone here is actually a killer yeah well i mean if everyone is then it's weird that the movie keeps empathizing with them, right? Like it's, it's yeah. very, very strange that the arcs that they give the various characters. Um, and, and I don't like, I watched it in 99 and thought this is interesting. Like that's all, that was my entire take. I walked away going, yeah, well, okay. I like the performances. <laughs> they obviously like Eddie Murphy loves makeup. So yeah, you know, nutty professor hits, he decides he wants to put it in this direction, but the makeup sort of held to the end and it's not the real focus. And, and clearly like based on, based on the trailer that you're describing and the one that I saw and all the stories about uh, the the reworking of the material, I think is how they put it. They didn't say we reshot a bunch, but the the, the original (laughs) DVD release was like full of stuff that didn't make it and discussions Mm -hmm. of why. Um, And they're like the, 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 there's a little placard on the trailer that I that Netflix is running that says songs by R. Kelly. Even that, though, oh yeah, I was yeah. I was gonna bring that up. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about yeah that. Speaking because you mostly hear Wyclef, Wyclef, yeah. The, but it is I do remember because I only knew about this movie through a music video I saw through the Casey and JoJo song, okay. which is at the end the Life song, and I just remember being like, oh, I want to see this movie. This looks cool, and then knowing. Um, that it was like an R. Kelly project, that whole soundtrack. And I was just like, oh, I guess there's that we're going to have to deal with when I rewatch <laughs> it. But luckily you don't hear his voice too much, so I can forget about it and just think about the Wyclef Jean of it all. Yeah, he was preemptively disappeared. That's kind of amazing, really. <laughs> but it was not, I like, I suspect it was not the thing it started out as. 
And I don't know if that's because Brian Grazer isn't interested in that sort of stuff, unless it's a Ron Howard film and it can be really, really important. Like this came mm-hmm. out the same year as The Hurricane, right. uh, which is a film I have massive problems with, but is at least about the thing that it's about. Definitely. And and life is this, like, it's not a bad movie and its choices are really interesting in a lot of ways. But I was so conscious that it can't tell the story of these men the way it should tell it or even acknowledge right. because they're leaning into the comedy of it, it. Yeah. It would be even worse if they did try to like really nail down how upsetting this is, like yeah. what the real reality is. They have to keep, you know, doing that magic trick of like, yeah, here, laugh over here and it'll all be fun. Yeah. I mean, these guys have whole lives. They're introduced as characters. It's not just types the way, mm-hmm. uh, the way like Wilder and Pryor were in that movie where you've seen these guys in a movie you liked. We're going to just basically ask them to do the same thing. This is, I mean, there's some echoes of Harlem Nights, I guess, in, in Murphy's performance, but yes, but he and Lawrence are the sort of oil and water combination of, of, the wild man and the straight man and the and the comic relief and the and the frantic fussy comic relief and they have like they have jobs and dreams and and relationships and I all think of those I things really have to leaned be, into that like yeah. the, his dream for the boom boom room like that always stuck with me like Eddie Murphy like needing to create the his own cotton club and stuff yeah which is like it's a great character point for Ray who who has a vision and just lacks the ability to put it all together. And I kind of like, I, it's weird. Like the one thing that's missing from the movie is a scene where he builds one in Mississippi, like, or just, you know, right. in the barracks or something. Cause the fantasy sequence is is great and weird and sad. Yes. Uh, it, it This was the first time I thought of it as sad. I was like, wow, this is the happiest they'll ever be as a group. Like, yeah, they're, and they're never going to get this close to this, <laughs> that close to this. Yeah. And the whole concept of the movie means we're, like none of this is going to pan out. None of the escape plans is going to work. None of the dreams is going to like, is there going to some, the, there's that little derailment in the midsection where Bokeem Woodbine shows up as a, as a phenom mm-hmm. pitcher who, you know, again, a lot of use of the R word there. And uh, a lot of, yeah, that's a rough. lot of weird, weird conditional treatment of a, of a mentally challenged character. Um, but the idea that they might get out as his manager's, I mean, we know that's never going to happen. The movie's telling us it's never going to happen, but it actually works that way. That that section, I think, is still kind of the most moving because I don't think... It, it, and they do a good job of, like, making sure that, like, that is what breaks Martin Lawrence, like, Claude. Like, it's like, he just can't accept that, like, like the way Ray is able to be like, all right, like, yeah, obviously that's how that's going to work out for us. Claude, that breaks Claude. He's just like, nope, no, like he said he was going to do it. I'm done. Like, I, I can't believe this didn't work out. And yeah. then that's kind of where they start parting their ways and it becomes sad for a little bit. Yeah. And it's a weird sad, right? Like there's that montage where people disappear and, and mm-hmm. we and we have to sort of accept the fact that we're never going to see these characters again, which... I'm positive was part of the reshooting because they've got it. Like they're at 28 year jump at that point in the film just seems yeah. really strange. Um, Cause we like, it's one, it's 1932, then 1945, then maybe 1970. And then they jumped to the 70. And I do yeah. think that this watch through, I was like, Oh, like they, it really is a much shorter period of time that they're old. Like in that, like, mm-hmm. you said, like the Rick Baker makeup, like it's like, 
that's just like kind of the last 10 minutes. Whereas I thought it was evenly split up like in my head. That was my memory of it as well. And I wonder if that isn't just because of the commercials. I mean, they really played up. They wanted the, that was the only Oscar nomination the film got. They were clearly (laughs) trying to get Baker recognized again. And I, I know that Eddie Murphy is like, he's enamored of makeup. Uh, especially at that point in his career when he was in his late thirties and his early forties, where he really just wanted to disappear. Mm -hmm. I think his face and his delivery became so identifiable with a certain type of comedy that he wanted to do literally anything else. Cause he, I mean, he wanted to be a movie star when he started, but he was always like a comic character actor. And this film uses that performance, like that, that history against him. Cause he can like for a while, Eddie, like in the certainly in the in the mid eighties, Eddie Murphy was Bugs Bunny. He could get out yes. of anything, and now he can't. And there's something really powerful about him disappearing himself the way he does in this film, like just receding into the makeup and letting that take over to the point where, you know, even his speech patterns change because he's yeah. he's concentrating on it. It gets a re- it's an interesting performance from a guy who wasn't always giving them at that point in time because he wasn't being asked to. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, while I didn't like the movie less, I think one thing that really stuck out to me was like, I really like this Eddie Murphy performance. And I, yeah. it kind of made me be like, oh, I wish I talked about this, his performance in this way more because I do feel that like it is his delivery. But even this time, I was so happy that he did switch up how he was delivering lines when he became older and they were living with like Ned Beatty and stuff. Like, I was like, yeah, like, Good job. Like I'm I'm glad that you switched it up, but you still feel like it's Ray. It's just he's older Ray. He's a little he's learned a lot more now. Yeah. He's broken by events, but not by his like friendships, by by the people mm-hmm. he like the people he trusts. Well, does he trust anybody really? Claude is the one who does most of the trusting, but Ray keeps clinging to Claude in that weird way that yeah. he's enlisting him in stuff, even though he doesn't necessarily like him. Just the idea that they got into this together and like Ray feels genuinely betrayed when Claude is chasing his own appeal without mm-hmm. including him. That's a weird beat story-wise, but it makes perfect sense the way he plays it. Yeah. You know, like the buddies. Yeah, like, oh, like what happened to we, Claude? Like, did we get some bad news in that letter? <laughs> yeah. And the the buddies who can't stand each other. Oh, I mean, it's your classic trope of comedy, but what is it? It's the scene with the bottles where he just says, I missed you. And mm-hmm. it lands like it really lands. I really like the bottle scene. Like <laughs> just even because I think that was, I mean, even before he's before Ray is up on the bottles, it's like, yeah, he's not going to um, say what needs to be said together. He's always going to be himself. So when uh, the guy, it's not Pike, it's the guy, whoever, Nick Cassavetes. Like, oh, yeah. The, 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 the bull. Like, whoever. He's like, hey, shoot him if he falls. He's like, oh, you don't want to give me that because I'll probably just shoot you. And I'm like, I mean, that's Ray. Like, he's he's constantly <laughs> talked himself into trouble the whole movie. Like, it's not going to change now just because he had this, like, decade-long fight with Claude. Yeah. There's this line that John Landis used to describe a scene in American World. He's like, the opening scene that everybody says is so much fun of David Naughton and Griffin Dunn just walking through the moors, just screwing around. Um, he says he's never understood why people laugh at that because they're going to die. Like everything, those those two characters are dead from the first frame of the film is how he put it. Mm-hmm. 
I find that fascinating when a filmmaker doesn't quite get the way the scene is being received by the audience because we're we're responding to the charisma, to the life that they're Mm -hmm. showing. And it's the same with this movie, I think, like where it's not sad because the performances are too buoyant. Even when they're breaking down in misery, there's still something comic to it. And the music keeps trying to be sad. Like the music keeps trying to, that's like, that's the narration for us. That's how we're supposed to know how to feel. But it's also somehow capable of accepting the weird mixed race baby I am Spartacus joke that pops up halfway through, which I like that was my first introduction. I mean, I think I oh, understood they were doing Spartacus. I yeah. think I knew, but I hadn't seen Spartacus at that point. Well, I just think day, I was it's like, 1945. Oh. Right. <laughs> so I think I was just like, oh, that's cool. And then I feel like they start laughing. And I was like, is that like a um usual suspects thing like the way they're in the lineup <laughs> and start laughing together like there's all sorts of like references like i certainly had shawshank redemption in my mind especially because it's like the the escapes that they pull off and like i remember basically up until this viewing me like oh what a good like way to get on and, and this time i was like i guess it's not that smart or clever <laughs> i just really like i was really swept up in it because you'd seen them fail so many times i was like i'm i'm just happy they got out i guess yeah yeah, one of them is bound to make it, and then it just keeps not happening. Um, it's such a it's such an odd artifact of storytelling too. Like from from nineteen ninety nine uh, to see how it handles, you know the I don't even know how to describe it. The sort of the prison gay stuff is how I would describe it then. Where it is odd because yeah. they like there's I feel like the one out no joke is when Bernie Mac introduces himself and he's like oh so like you'll have no problem adjusting or anything yeah. like it. And Martin doesn't understand what he's saying. But then I feel like they take at least the relationship between Django like, and Cookie seriously enough. Yeah. Like, his death scene. It's not played for laughs. Yeah. It's not about gay panic, right? Like it's about honoring those characters in a really weird sideways kind of way. Like they have to get the laugh out first just to, mm-hmm. to make everybody in the theater relax. But, you know, this is at a point in time where, queer relationships, especially in black comedy, just aren't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's weirdly progressive. And that struck me this time. It's like, oh, this was handled a lot better than I remembered. Yeah, I was worried going into, I'm like, all right, how many, because yeah, I think it is that scene, like that they, it is played for last, but the death scene, I, I really appreciated. Like, I mean, I hope I was hoping he wouldn't die, but I also understand the mentality of that character. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was another like, play to Shawshank Redemption when the yeah. first guy gets out and hangs himself and I was just like yeah like what he he sets it up he's like what am I going to do when I get out like I can't I can't live like that yeah that line just rings in a strange way I can't go home like this and what does that mean exactly like who was he before who did he think he was mm-hmm. um, that's lo- like what ha- it's the closest it comes I think to arguing that prison destroys people. This movie doesn't want to acknowledge that because again, if we did, then we have to think about just how sad it is that these guys had futures taken away from them. Um, But then we get a little petty revenge, which once again has a white savior thing to it. Kind of, sort of, that doesn't pan out. Well, Um, this is the, I saw it as I'm glad that that, that, like the, the net, you're talking about the net beating character. I can't remember his name in the movie. Well, yeah, the the warden or the governor, I was just going to say, just killing Arlie Ermey, killing Pike in revenge. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So but, that I guess that is them getting some kind of revenge. But I was happy that, 
I, I keep saying things that are weird. I'm not happy he died. I'm happy that he wasn't able to like follow through and get them out. Like it was their own doing that got them out of that situation. Like as, as much as it was nice that that white person protected them when they, everyone would have just been like, yeah, they killed him. Um, and he believed them. It was all for naught because they still had to go back to the infirmary and be in prison because he died on the toilet. Like it's yeah. not, he didn't actually get to like fulfill the white savior thing. It, he, it was getting there and then it stopped it. Yeah. It's like the one joke that's missing. And given Ted Demi's other films, I'm convinced they shot it, that there mm-hmm. is, there is footage somewhere of like either Murphy or Lawrence, or maybe even both of them just opening the door, finding him dead and just kind of going, ah, and going back downstairs or something just yeah. for the joke of it. Cause that's just too, it's too funny not to do it. But at that point in the film, you also couldn't do that to people. I don't think. Right. I think it would be, it's, it's good that they kind of break and then like, it's more, it's more of that like Princess Bride thing of like the narrator talking to the people who's sons so that you don't have to like have the visual of like, oh, and he died. And then what what was the process of getting them back to the jail and everything? Yeah. You can just hear it and be like, okay, fine, whatever, they're back. Surprisingly, like it's not, an epic length. It's like 105 minutes before credits and it's just mm-hmm. zipping along at that point. Well, we've got another two decades to go. So let's just roll through that. And then you get more cranky old man makeup stuff. But again, there there's acting going on under there. Like it's mm-hmm. not just the joke, which I think was how everybody dismissed it at the time. I mean, you've got the, the DVD cover as your backdrop and that is definitely a comedy spin on the movie that you're about to see with, um, you know, Lawrence and Murphy looking indignant and <laughs> everyone surrounding them being larger and more threatening. It's, that's not the movie though. Like that's not no. ultimately what it becomes. Um, and I guess I should say, I do like Martin's performance only because at that time I'd only seen him on his TV show. And I thought like, it's still, you still see how that, person could play this role but it was a lot more toned down it wasn't as stool fucky as like some other stuff he's done he was like measured it it, like i was like good for him like he's he's not trying to get the laughs by being the idiot in a scene the the, all the laughs are because of how persnickety is and everything like i i liked that element of his performance yeah it's a good fit too putting him against murphy who's just always going to be the bigger personality just because Mm -hmm. of the associations we bring with him um and i found out this surprised me actually but according to the imdb at least the um the 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 white pie scene was originally reversed it was lawrence Mm -hmm. like claude is the one who gets more upset and ray just wants to leave because he gets the the tone of the, the room immediately and instead they gave it to murphy and he just basically complained louder and that worked and it, yeah. and it, like, it makes sense too. Cause he's, he's like the, again, he's the rooster. He's the one who just comes in and just starts yelling at everybody until they do what he wants, even though that never works for him even once, no. uh, which is sort of great. I did look. Yeah. I, I really do like that Pisces because one, I like that they acknowledge, like, he's like, Oh, that sign that says no colors. Yeah. How did we miss that? How do we, but like, because it is kind of like he's like yeah whatever we're from new york we can figure this out and they're like no let's not (laughs) get out of here um and i also like his watch that like the thing with his oh the running with his father's watch watch, yeah i really appreciated that they like stuck with that um just because i do find that like in these situations 
it's best for me if I know there's something that one of the characters actually cares about. Like he can do all the scheming he wants, but like it'll all blow up if something bad happens to his father's watch. Like that's that's what's gonna always anchor him and like let me know that he is taking stuff seriously. Yeah. And it works for the it actually works for their relationship too, because like for, for Ray and Claude, because I'd forgotten the first time I saw it, I have this weird thing about props uh, in the back of my mind half the time where, you know, you know, the basic unreality of movies, but if you get invested enough in something, then, then it becomes a visual callback and it, and it takes on a, a certain, I, I know I told this on the back to the future episode of the podcast. It's the dumbest thing that's ever gone through my brain watching a movie, but there was a point where, when I was watching Back to the Future for the 12th or 13th time, because I went every Tuesday for the entire summer to, to see nice. it and like take it apart and figure out how it worked. There was one moment where when Doc produces the note that Marty wrote to him in 1955, I'll take together. And um, I, it just went through the back of my head for a split second. It's like, well, how did they get that to age up like that? How, do, how would you do that? And then my inner voice just said, well, they obviously left it in 1955 when they shot there and then they picked it up now. <laughs> and my brain started yelling at me and that nice. was bad, but easily the dumbest thing I've ever thought. But, but the watch in this one, I remember thinking, oh, it looks good. Like it's, it's still, they, like it's clearly the same prop that they shot for the 1932 sequences in the 1970s. But that actually bolsters Ray's insistence that it's real instead of Claude's dismissal of it, like this is some fake shit. Mm -hmm. And Ray says, no, no, this is real. This is my father's watch. And when you see it working and shiny, it's just like, oh yeah, okay. Ray was always telling the truth about that. Yes. Yeah. I, I like that. That's the one truth is that he cares about this. Everything else is up for like discussion, but he cares about that watch because it's probably the only real thing he got from his dad. Yeah. Yeah. It struck me uh, watching it again. It's like that could have been something you add in in the rewrites to give it uh, weight, but it feels like it was there the whole time. It, like it mm -hmm. feels like the most natural point. I mean, like Claude has a, a, a quasi-married relationship in this film that, that is just vanished, just eliminated, but the watch is real <laughs> yes. more, than, more than that relationship. And Ray never gets any sense of, if he has a family, he never mentions it beyond that. If he has people it just I, I liked that they're like hey sorry about your mom he's like well that yeah that happened five years ago but thank you anyway and i yeah. i think cicely Tyson was supposed to be his mom that would I make sense get the sense that that's what she was playing but yeah, yeah with this movie maybe that would have been a bit too much gravitas if you because i think she would have been there the day that everyone came to visit them um and yeah. at the, the jail and maybe that just would have you wouldn't be able to zip along if you if you had someone of that stature in the movie. Yeah. Well, like she just wouldn't play it for comedy. No. Would she? I mean, I, it's probably on the DVD. I should look it up. But uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine that you would ask Cicely Tyson to be silly in yeah. that in that role at that point in her career. So yeah, maybe that's unfortunately how come she's not in it. But I, I would have liked to have seen that because yeah, you're right. Like it's he only talks about his dad but other than that there's no no human connection he has other than at that point claude yeah i mean that's and that's so much of the eddie murphy thing right like um i'm trying to think of any film that gave him an existing romantic relationship in the 80s like, like the golden child the guy just exists i don't think he has mm -hmm. a, a home life or, or 48 hours he's been in prison all of his relationships are gone and beverly, it, well i guess he's got the friend in beverly hills friends but no romantic friend, yeah, yeah but exactly. no romantic connections because he just doesn't do that in the eighties, which is weird. Like he, and even in, what am I thinking? Oh, Harlem nights where there is a romance, but he kills her. 
So that's first, Jasmine guy, right? Yeah, that's yeah. That yeah. early scene where it's suggested and then she's trying to get him, so he gets her first. And it's just like a really weird relationship that he has to to women as not co-stars exactly, because he could share the screen with people, mm-hmm. but he just didn't want to be he didn't do the love thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, speaking of Harlemites, I I think this is also a movie the first time I was aware of like meta jokes when he's in the fight and he goes, I know a bitch named Della who hits harder than you. I'm like, Oh, like he's yeah. actually referencing Della Reese from Harlem nights. Like it was just like, Oh, <laughs> I thought it was just like a throwaway thing. And then like the more I rewatch, I'm like, Oh, I see what he's doing. Yeah. That's well, funny, and, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And given how, uh, how, how dead on arrival Harlem nights, what, like I saw that with a preview audience and it, you could feel the room just lose their hope. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it's like, Oh, this isn't, going to be good and it just gets sadder and sadder this felt really weird when it was announced that it was going to start in roughly the same era but then it turns out of course it's just a it's a fake out it's not really where the movie is going but that's almost kind of brave of him 10 years later to go back to that territory i yeah i agree because i i've only seen it the one time and i was just like why isn't this what i wanted it to be yeah (laughs) yeah exactly Now the, it seems um, like it should be it should be great like it should be a lot of fun and I was just like ah oh, you're making me work for everything in this movie <laughs> yeah and I you know again I get it he just wanted to work with Richard Pryor and make a gangster movie and someone let him like that's the problem yeah, he just he did it on his own and and he's just not a screenwriter no. um, I think for a start or as it turns out a director but but the the Murphy that made life is the same guy who's making Bowfinger the same year, like he's come through it. He's doing, he's, he's comfortable doing character comedy. And it really did feel like, I mean, I know the, oh, there was one other one he made right around that same time, which I hated. Uh, Holy man, maybe. Yeah. I did not like Holy man. Yeah. If it is that one, I did not like I that. I think one. it was right around that same time. There was a string of a movies strong made reaction to that. Yeah. It's not good. It's not good, but it felt yeah. like as well, like that was a big leading man role that he just, that just didn't, land and so he started taking character parts more aggressively and this is like nutty professor and this and bowfinger and it saved him i think in a lot of ways yeah i definitely think so but then obviously the problem with nutty professor is then he learns like oh i don't have to be on set with anybody like we can all block it out and i can do my own thing yeah and then there's the beginning of that issue but i think yeah bowfinger in life is like a good um insight into him being able to be more than just Eddie Murphy in a movie. He can be different characters. Yeah. And credibly like there, it's not yeah. just, it's not just a stunt the way Nutty Professor was like, it's just, you know, he enjoys the caricature, but if you leave the camera on him, he will give you something like he will mm-hmm. actually produce. And I think he makes Lawrence better. And you know, like people like Bernie Mac, who I guess around that time, he didn't even have a show yet, right? Like he was just No, that would have just been Def Jam poet, like comedy, sorry, not poetry. That would have yeah. been, so it would have been like Martin and Bernie know each other from like Def Jam. And then, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I think those were the two big comedians. And then everyone else, like obviously Anthony Anderson's in there, Miguel Nunez, who actually went on to do a couple of movies like Juana Man. I was like, oh, it's interesting that he was, because he, uh, he's like a, he does drag in this um, sort of for, yeah, yeah. for the fantasy sequence, but then he also does uh Joanna man. And I was just like, Oh, that's nice. It's nice that he's able to do that and mix it up. <laughs> yeah. It was the, it was the pipeline, right? Like you got a small role in one of these and then someone would 
you got a few te- uh, TV show episodes, a few mm-hmm. guest spots here and there, and all of a sudden you're in a feature film because, you know, we think content is king now, but 20 years ago, the studios were, remember the Touchstone mid-range movie, like The Sixth Man and all that stuff where they just mm-hmm. kept cranking out features after features to always to release in the spring for some reason. Um, but there's that disposable comedy pipeline. They're just this this assembly line, really. And I, I'm always kind of amazed that Bernie Mac had the career he had because he was an incendiary presence. Mm-hmm. And somehow these movies keep trying to make him lovable like this and uh and the oceans movies too like he's he's right he's, he's like the friendly one like he has his moment in like the first one but yeah overall he's like the friendly guy like he's the friend that you can count on yeah in the just, ocean movies and in this one yeah you like him you're not afraid of him he's not he's not intimidating yeah he had a little more to do and i i, I met him on the head of state junket that was basically oh, the, nice. yeah it was i that was kind of an amazing day it was it was a last minute um offer do you want to go to new york and do the head of state junket a friend of mine just needed someone to shoot video because um she had something else across in los angeles i think that week okay. and so i got to go yeah dylan baker that's who it was yeah. lynn whitfield i'm not sure i met her robin givens i think uh i don't know robin Keith david I did four or five Tracy interviews. Morgan. I didn't get to talk to Tracy Morgan. I met him in an elevator years later, which was weird. Um, I, I, that's what I want to hear, that it was weird when you met him. Yeah. Well, he just, it was one of those things where there are some people when you're in an elevator, uh, they look at their phone so they don't have to have a conversation, mm-hmm. which which is fine. And Tracy Morgan just kind of looked at me and smiled and I nodded and he just kept looking at me and smiling. And it was just this great <laughs> moment of him holding it, waiting to see what I was going to do. And it was just like, this is the best possible experience. This is the best yeah. version of that encounter that I could have. And then the doors open. I was like, nice meeting you. And he's like, okay, <laughs> nice. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But Ber- talking to Bernie Mac about head of state, which, you know, not a great movie, but a good showcase for what he can do. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Cause he was talking about how he and rock would just come up with better stuff than made it into the movie. And he was sort of doing it to needle rock, who was the you know writer and director. <laughs> um, but it was this really interesting experience where I could, tell that he just didn't think the movie got him right. And right. we were talking around that. And I think the show was already on television because we were, we were talking about the difference between looking down the barrel of the camera and to tell jokes or to perform for an audience without being like obvious about it. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, it's a five minute TV interview. There's no time to talk about anything, but I think it was just great to talk to him about how he figures stuff out in the room. And, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, he was a, he was a big guy. He was like, he took up a lot of space and, and watching. Yeah. Even this watching, I'm, I'm staring at this image of him in your background with that weird <laughs> smile because Django leg had a weird smile. And that was the one character bit he has for the whole movie. He's just, yeah. whenever you see him, he's like three quarters rooted in whatever's going on. And then something else behind his eyes. It's just, like he's just a fascinating presence and I wish he'd gotten to do more. I mean, Me I wish too. he'd lived long enough to do more. I'm I'm glad he got a show. Cause I remember like watching his comedy. That was a big thing he wanted. He wanted to do a sitcom. So I'm glad he got that, but yeah, it, it does feel like we were shortchanged on the full Bernie Mac experience. Yeah. Well, there could have been more. There should be more. Oh, we have all the other stuff and, uh, yeah. and we have life, which again, like it shouldn't work at all, but given, especially now, like I'm just, you know, through the lens of, of the present day where 
yeah, uh, I wish I'd seen a Robert Townsend version of this. Or like even now, I kind of expect someone is going to make a straight remake of it that isn't a comedy. And and just blow everybody's heads off by finally saying, oh, yeah, well, I thought about this Eddie Murphy movie that I watched when I was a kid and I realized there was a way to do it and, and actually be sad and, and yeah. embrace the tragedy of it. But it works like it's watchable. It's bouncy. Ted Demi, who also didn't get to live long enough to do everything he could have done, isn't a bad choice for it, I think. Like he just he knows how to manage an ensemble and he knows how to get actors to just do stuff in the corners it's it's unfortunate that that's yeah i like the the tape like the big table scene where it comes down to no i'm you can't have my cornbread but like the way he cuts so that you can kind of get people's interjections of like well it wasn't the he's like people say that and it cuts to bernie mcdowell a lot of people say it though like i thought that was really fun the way he was able to do that and and capture everyone's jokes and not feel overwhelming or like it was too much going on yeah, you really get a sense of who the supporting cast is, like the characters and the actors. Um, yes. And definitely. that's something he did in like, again, we're not supposed to talk about Kevin Spacey anymore as a, as a positive, <laughs> but The Ref is a really solid movie. And mm-hmm. it's exactly the same sort of dynamic where every character gets to be fully realized. And we know why everybody is pissed off at everybody else pretty quickly into that film. Yeah, I to be honest, like when I first saw it, I, I don't know that it was something that I'd ever... Um, think about like who directed this if it wasn't like for my purposes because I loved Batman so much if it wasn't Tim Burton or if it wasn't <laughs> Steven Spielberg I was like yeah someone made it and then like because I liked the story so or at least the way the story was told so much it did make me lean into okay who wrote it who directed it it was the beginning of that kind of traction for me yeah so did you only see it the one time theatrically or was it something that you revisited I saw it in theaters and then I I Got it on VHS as soon as I could. I have it on DVD. I haven't, I don't think it's available on Blu-ray, but I still have the DVD. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure either. I was looking for it the other day and it's uh, surprisingly hard to find. Because it used to be on Canadian Netflix. Yeah. It's not there anymore. There's this rotating set of um, universal properties. Uh, The Imagine Entertainment ones are currently off, but the Amblin ones are on. So that's like, it'll be back. It won't be long. Um, But yeah, no, they're... Huh, that's weird. There does not appear to be a Blu-ray, at least in in Canada. There are one, two, three, four different editions of Life with uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. There we go. And we did. We talked about this before we started recording. That yeah. I was like, you said Life, and I'm pretty sure we figured out which one it was going to be. And then I completely forgot to double check, and was like, if we end up talking about the other one, I could probably fake it. But I don't. I'm glad want- we didn't have to because I haven't seen it, and <laughs> I do resent that it's called life because i'm like there should only be the one movie called life and it should be this one (laughs) that's reasonable i mean it is set in a space station so technically it's also a prison but it's very different all right fine so that they do kind of line up yeah Uh, but yeah i I think that's good news for my wife that there's no blu-ray because it means i won't be buying another physical copy of something uh wait no there's an american edition there we go i won't tell anybody (laughs) Yeah, so, we, uh, hopefully she doesn't hear this part of the interview and then it'll just be in the house one day. Yeah, I find the spouses always tune out around 25 minutes in. I don't know why. <laughs> My own wife does it with me and it's fine. I accept it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so as a writer and producer, I guess the, the obvious question is like, is there anything you've taken from life? Is there anything you've tried to to lift or replicate or used as inspiration? I don't, I mean, I don't think it was conscious, but I do think it is when I'm writing like I, I um, at one, 
I, I self-published a book and I remember telling her it's a comedy and everyone's just kind of like, yeah, there's funny parts. It seems really sad though. And I think I just really ran with the whole, like having funny parts lighten up really sad <laughs> subject matter. Okay. Um, and then um, the feature film that we are still trying to work around the pandemic to get done, but I, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it during this pandemic, but I do think I consciously was like, it's already a sad subject matter. And I I wanted to try and make sure that like no one felt too much of that weight throughout the whole movie. So I do, I do think that, yeah, the, the way that this movie is able to kind of lift your spirits with um, some well-timed jokes um, is something that I put into my work a lot is I might not be writing out and out comedies, but I'll have, a lot of funny moments so that you're not too sad throughout the whole story. It's a good operating philosophy, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, this time I tried, but I feel like I've never consciously done it until recently. <laughs> like, I think it just always was like, no, this is just funny. Oh, I see how this could be seen as sad. <laughs> it's good. No, I'm so what is the subject matter? Unless you don't want to talk about it. Oh, I can talk about it. I yeah. I'm working with the director. We, we are kind of like a production, uh, duo um and it's about his time as a deathmatch wrestler something i'd never heard of until i met him where you actually do use like staplers and barbed wire and hit each other and he has a kid and the movie is really based around like what wins out in that like your love for your kid or your love for this sport and i tried as hard as I could to not make it feel like the wrestler. I think I did a good job of that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the movie is, is this, um, it's more of a family drama. The focus is more on the family stuff than it is on the wrestling, but the wrestling is in there as well. Okay. I can see why you'd want to lighten that up a little bit. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't, I didn't want it to have it be as sad as the director kind of envisioned it. <laughs> so there's a push and pull. Yeah, I, I think we work well together. He's he's very visceral, which is kind of why the death, I think that comes from the deathmatch stuff in yeah. particular. Um, and uh, I like to be a bit more uh, nuanced with my stuff. So I feel like we get uh, uh, something that feels like the best of both worlds in, in our in our output. My thanks to Daniel Grant, who you can hear co-hosting the Spoiled Rotten and Uncolonized podcasts on the TDF Everything Network. And thanks also to Jeremy Lalonde for booking us both on that High Noon episode of Black Hole Films last year. You'd probably enjoy listening to that, too. You can find Daniel on Twitter at TheYoungGuard, T-H-E-Y-U-N-G-G-U-A-R-D, all one word. And you can find Life on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Netflix in Canada and available on most VOD platforms in North America. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday, and I write far too many words about movies and television. This week, I made fun of the Golden Globes. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.